Welcome to the Curious Cult Podcast. I am your obsessively curious host, Nick Haralambis, and today I am really excited to be talking to Trip Hawkins about his curiosity. Trip is an incredibly accomplished entrepreneur who has a vast breadth of skill and depth of experience. He's the founder and first CEO of Electronic Arts, was crowned King of the Nerds by The Economist, and he designed, produced, and marketed his first game while still a teenager, and at that young age, mapped out a 10-year plan that led him to founding Electronic Arts. Trip, thank you for joining me today to discuss my favorite topic, curiosity. Well, thank you, and, and it's a great topic from my perspective. I, I think I only really noticed in the last five years exactly how relentlessly curious I am and began to realize, and I agree with you about it uh, as, a, as a theme, I, I realized that it was a really fundamental aspect of who I am and what uh, caused me to be a lifelong learner and, and to uh, have the kind of career that I had. And it's, it's a topic that I regularly bring up now with, uh, with the entrepreneurs that I talk to regularly. You say in the last, like, give or take five years, what made you um, gain that perspective that curiosity was so important? I, um, I started to have more opportunity for reflection. And a lot of this just has to do with the fact that, you know, we get older, we accumulate experience, we have more of our own personal history to reflect on. Five years ago, I also transitioned from having spent, you know, 30, 40 years founding companies and being a CEO and being a leader right out on the battlefield, which is pretty hectic. And you step back from that. And it was stepping back from that, but stepping forward into being more of a teacher. Uh, I started having uh, clients in a business consulting practice where I thought, you know, I'm going to go help the next generation. I want to have a slightly less complicated lifestyle. I don't want to feel like I'm having to work 24 seven to keep a startup alive. I want to spend more time with my four children and with my wife and, and just have a somewhat uh, different lifestyle. But I have plenty of time to help young entrepreneurs that are going through the very things that that I've been through many times and, and people, people would more regularly, not just the media, you know, that I've been asked by the media countless times, what was the key to your success? So that's another example of the kind of question. When you ask that question, you, you need to spend some time reflecting and really figuring out, okay, yeah, who am I? And I would say I've done a lot more work in the last five years trying to understand identity and, and uh, how innovation and entrepreneurship really work. And then I got hired to be a professor at the University of California. I did that for about three and a half years. Again, I had a classroom, I had several classrooms full of people wanting to know uh, whether or not they should do it. Actually, a lot of times they didn't know that's what they needed to know. I realized myself that I'd better tell them that because it's really not for everyone. But they certainly, again, asked me a lot of questions and I had to, I really had to think hard in the last five years. Of, what do I really know? <laughs> when you were a kid, were you always curious? Like, do you recall just being, like you said, relentlessly curious? Uh, yes, very, very much so. And you mentioned you, you've got four kids. Uh, how do you promote curiosity in your children? Well, you want, you want to uh, be open and flexible and kind of tune into what they're curious about. 
where they seem to get excited and you know evidence some degree of passion thing you know like some little kids will uh just just jump on a musical instrument and start goofing around with it and others just don't care about it you know see for example you might sense that okay here's someone who's got enough curiosity about music that that they uh maybe you know are are going to be a better candidate for some instruction and development <clears throat> same the same thing with the kid that is really mechanical about you know wanting to take things apart and put things together and kind of understand systems. I mean, there's, there's just all kinds of things that show up. You know, also uh, uh, stories. Uh, storytelling is such a fundamental, deep part of the human condition. We wouldn't really be human without stories. And right from the very beginning, you know, we are telling ourselves stories about the reality that we're perceiving and about who we think we are. And there's a lot of things as children that we don't understand because we don't have any experience. We don't have any maturity. So there's a lot to not understand and we're just observing and we don't understand what's happening in the adult relationships. We don't often uh, uh, correctly interpret how we're treated. So it's very easy to get hurt and to misunderstand. And then the ego to protect us starts crafting stories. And, and so we go through, we go through life uh, really uh, responding and catering to the stories that are in our head. And that's an, that's another dimension to tune into with kids is uh, are they really interested in stories? Are they potentially someone who's able to have the imagination to make up stories? And I was that kind of kid. I, I was uh, I was already at a very young age creating really elaborate fantasy worlds and taking parts of this toy and connecting with the parts of that toy and integrating things together into a really vast fantasy world. <laughs> So, you know, and, and it was pretty clear that, yeah, I, did, I would go over to friends' house, and, you know, say, yeah, they're not doing anything on this level. <laughs> you mentioned um, a couple of words that uh, triggered some thoughts for me around kids. And what I think makes kids so brilliant at being curious is they actually don't have uh, what we as adults know as ego and they don't have a fear of failure. And I think both of those things in adults prevent curiosity. Um, how do you feel about that statement? Well, I'm going to really a word that's a very big part of my life, play. What, what she's transitioned from childhood to adult is a lot of people saying, okay, play is for children. When we're adults, we have to stop playing and take things seriously, and what we're doing is work. If you think about work versus play, they, they really involve a lot of the same physical movements, involve a lot of the drawing on the same mental capacities, so the kinds of thinking and and creativity and analysis and counting. And, and yet we can look at some human activities and say, oh my God, there's no way I could do that for more than an hour without being bored to death. Or it feels like something that only a prisoner in a, in a, in a prison ought to be forced, you know, forced labor to do. It's inhumane. And, and, and then on the other hand, there's things that we're happy to do over and over and over and that we never get tired. That's a really super important thing to tune into is just to notice in yourself, all right, what am I drawn to? What, what for me feels like play? And then, yeah, well, the point you're making is that something happens along the way where people stop being playful. And so, you know, I think it is related to what you said about risk taking and open mindedness. You know, and it's, it's really important to help kids hang on to that 
as they get older and they start uh, being forced by institutional structure in our, in our world, in our society, in our culture. But you can still maintain that yes. if you work at it. Agreed. And in your, I mean, you've worked with some absolutely incredible people, one of which being Steve Jobs. Um, did he have that sense of play and curiosity and risk taking that you're talking about? Yes. And the other thing about, about Steve you have to realize is that, in fact, my opinion of his uh, Myers-Briggs personality type is a particular type profile. And I, I kind of figured this out just from you know, I worked closely with the guy for four years. We were pretty close friends. We even shared a few of the same girlfriends. We were close. And, you know, you, you have a lot of personal conversations, a lot of personal, you know, intimate experiences. You know people. So you can think about a, a person that you know that well and say, okay, was this person an extrovert or an introvert? I mean, I, I don't find it that difficult because I've worked with Myers-Briggs as a uh, you know, testing profile quite a bit. So I can, I can often even meet a stranger and within five minutes, I will basically say, I think this is what type you are. And, and uh, I'll explain it to them and I'll ask them, does that sound about right? So it, it, I don't think it's actually that hard to figure out. So, it, but it turns out that the type that I think Steve was is called the debater. And if, if, you, if you think about the actual experience he had, I didn't, did not like school. He couldn't, he couldn't sit still in the classroom all day. He basically started skipping school and doing things that were more interesting outside of the classroom. He spent a lot of time with his stepfather, Paul Jobs, who was a great teacher and, and uh, brought him into a lot of his hobbies. And, you know, there's a lot of stories that Steve later told about what he learned um, from building a fence and caring about the backside of the fence that nobody was going to see. That's one of you know, the, the anecdotes about his design sensibility and wanting to have the inside of a machine be aesthetically pleasing. But at any rate, then he's obviously famous for uh, basically being kind of a high school dropout. I don't mean he literally dropped out of high school, but he, re- he clearly wasn't spending a lot of time in class. He was spending a lot of time with Waz, and they were inventing stuff and doing things. And then he uh, uh, went off to India for a while, and then he went to read college for a while, and he dropped out of there right away. So when you talk about what he was like, and I, you know, I, I started working with him. He was probably something like 22 or 23 when I started working with him. He really had not gone to school, and he didn't know the things. He didn't know the things that people learn from books and learn from teachers in school. So he had to conduct a, a Socratic dialogue with really smart people around him to try to figure out what he thought about things. So he was in constant conversation, in constant debate, and essentially constantly arguing with a very simple purpose that he and I shared, which is the quest for the truth. So, okay, we're going to argue until we beat this thing to death, we figure out what's absolutely true, or we figure out what it is we don't know that we have to go learn and prove in order to get to the truth. And not taking it personally when people disagree and instead being curious about why they disagree and where are they coming from and what's the evidence. You know, so, so it's funny because uh, obviously Steve is really famous for blowing people up and, and getting really mad about things that he thought weren't well done and being, you know, not being able to control his emotions when he was disappointed. But uh, there, were, there was kind of an inner circle of people like myself that he respected 
because we were the right kind of people for him to bounce things off of, help him refine his thinking. So yeah, he was just literally living, he was living in and dwelling in his curiosity and bringing other people in kind of a salon. And in your, in your life, uh, either early or currently, can you think of an example of your curiosity that stands out that's very odd for the kind of work you're in? I mean, curiosity, like you're saying with Steve, is vast and deep. Um, is there anything that stands out in your mind as an example? Well, when I go back to my childhood and think about, uh, uh, think about aspects of curiosity and style, um, one of them is that I had a short walk to the elementary school I went to. And I would walk often alone or with a friend and go by a really dilapidated old house with a really rundown yard and hadn't been painted in decades. And there was a super creepy old man that lived there. So it was literally like having a haunted house on your, on your walk to school. And I was just super curious about that guy and that place. And so among the friends group that I was in, I was the one who would do the provocative things like uh, open the gate and go up to the front door and look in through the open screen. And I, I would be the one that would ring the doorbell. And, <laughs> you know, uh, so uh, one thing, one of the things about curiosity is that, you know, and, and as it kind of ties into innovation and technology and, and entrepreneurship, it does involve risk. You know, you've got to be prepared to go into the unknown and you have to be uh, willing to be a little exposed. And even at a minimum, intellectually, you're potentially going to find out that something that you're really attached to is false. So just right there, there's an intellectual threat from your own curiosity. But then there's also other kinds of danger. I mean, who knows what could have happened physically, you know, if that guy had uh, pulled out a gun or kidnapped me or whatever. And then I would say what's more career oriented for me is that I still kind of find it amazing that I was so young. I mean, I was really just a kid and I found myself drawn to uh, games, which at that time were just board games, card games, et cetera. But I really love games that were trying to simulate either some interesting phenomenon from adult life. You know, even a game like Monopoly is trying to do that. So in, in the case of Monopoly, okay, we're going to do property development. We're going to we're going to be real estate people that are going to develop and trade properties. Uh, try to run a business and collect more rent than what uh, what we're incurring in our uh, capital costs. I mean, uh, and obviously there's a lot of negotiating and maneuvering involved in Monopoly. We should try to figure out how to create leverage over others. So you're kind of learning some of the most fundamental tools that have to do with persuasion and negotiating. And, and establishing yourself in business models and, and carving out a place in a value chain. And you just don't even realize that that's uh, what you're learning. And honestly, that's a really shallow example. And I, I still managed to you know, pump some life into it. There were far more interesting. Yeah, there were far more interesting simulations to me. And I'll give you a couple of concrete examples. So one would be something like Dungeons and Dragons. And of course, Dungeons and Dragons is a fantasy. You have dragons, you have magic spells, et cetera. You have you know, mythological creatures. But it's actually portraying a lot of realism in the situations that you find yourself in. You're navigating your way through a map and through dungeons. You're <clears throat> assessing risk. You're trying to decide when to fight and when to flee. 
uh, you're having conversations with uh, uh, various characters. You're, you're trying to collaborate in a team, sometimes having team members betray you. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff that goes on in D&D that is, in fact, the kind of stuff that goes on in adult human life. So, you know, and it's a super geeky game, as you know. And meanwhile, uh, I, happen, I discovered in myself a real passion for complicated team sports like football and baseball where I could tell there was a lot of strategy and where I could apply my mind to that and try to figure out, hey, is there a way I could be smarter about this and have an advantage? And, and I, you know, I thought about that both as uh, from a coach's perspective or even a team owner's perspective and also as a player, uh, as a player's perspective. <laughs> and then I discovered, again, I was just a kid, I discovered statistics so there were a couple of big uh, uh, breakthroughs for me. One of them was trying to get people to play these games with me. And there were a few uh, sports equivalents where they were simulating a sport, kind of like the D&D of football or the D&D of baseball. And I discovered these back in the 1960s. And I would try to get my friends to play with them. And then I noticed that some the, the friends that were just as geeky as me that really loved strategy and liked to play war games and liked stats and liked resource management. So those are uh, the, the handful of friends that I picked out. Okay, these are really good friends. And guess what? That was over 50 years ago. They're still, these people are still my best friends. <laughs> I'm, I'm competing with these people. Uh, we still play games, and we're competing and thinking about each other's competitors every day of the year. But you talk about resonating with something that's a really deep, true part of yourself. But meanwhile, most of my friends would get bored, and they would drift off and watch television. And I would literally look into the other room that they had drifted into and say, well, okay, they, they won't play this game with me. Shoot, I want people to play with me. And why are they going off to watch the TV? And I would see what was on the screen. You know, there's these uh, flickering animated images going by on the screen. And, and I kind of grew through the transition from black and white into color television. It got more dynamic. And you can see, yeah, it's fairly captivating. And there's almost no effort. And that was one of the awarenesses that I had. Again, curiosity coming into this, realizing what's going on when you're watching TV. You're passive. You're relaxed. You're kind of dumbing yourself down. You're not really thinking. This is before anybody even called it the boob tube. And then I noticed in games, I was all fired up and I was excited and my mind was on fire. And I thought, this is better. There's something better here about interacting with something. And so I kind of understood this uh, principle from play and just observing myself at play that was actually later proven by brain scientists at the University of California that proved, this woman named Marion Diamond led this research that proved scientifically that the single best way to increase human intelligence is through interaction. And of course, as we know now, the most potent form of simulated interaction, that's not say real world interaction, because if I wanna know how to fly a, a jet fighter, I could go pay a huge amount of money and buy a jet fighter or rent one and hire instructors and I'd probably get myself killed, right? 
But what we know is that I can now just use almost any computer, even a mobile phone, and I can fly any dang airplane that's ever been invented. And I can crash hundreds of millions of dollars worth of aircraft without anyone actually getting hurt. So the power of simulation, it was just, it was just really clear to me. And, but I realized I'm looking over at the TV and I'm thinking, you know what? It's got to be more like TV because, you know, when you play say, a game like Dungeons and Dragons, there's all this administration you're doing just to manage all of the information and to keep track of all the data and the stats and the, and the uh, you know, the, the probabilities and everything else. And I was okay with doing that because I'm geeky enough for it. And for, you know, for um, a nerdy enough person, even that part is kind of fun. But the mainstream human beings, no. You know, that, that's something that really ought to be done by a machine. And then, of course, I had the good fortune to um, find out about uh, computers. And, and then, you know, as I aged, as I, I grew and, you know, became a teenager, I started to discover that, wow, uh, computers are actually a thing. And they're getting cheaper all the time. And they're gradually going to poke into homes. And there's going to be a way to make games where you put all of the administrative stuff inside the box and you present it as real life in a box and you make it look like television. And uh, there's, there's such an incredible uh, link from curiosity as a kid playing D&D to um, in, interacting with the sport as a coach and a player, um, all these wide varieties of things that interested you. Um, and then leading into founding Electronic Arts, which is the clear path. I mean, your interest in sports and D&D and television and computers are wide and different, and you would never expect people to put them together. But given enough time from when you were a kid to when computers were able to do the things you needed them to do, that obviously led you to founding Electronic Arts. Right. And, and by the way, I started consciously thinking about starting a company that would make video games around 1970. So again, I am still a teenager and, and, uh, I'm, <clears throat> I'm imagining that it's going to take quite a while before I can really do it. And in 1975, I heard a few things again, that for me were like blockbuster ideas that I could then project into the future. And so actually in 1975, that's when I decided that I would start electronic arts in 1982, which in fact is what I did. So the, the, uh, the road to founding electronic arts, it was at least 12 years long. That's amazing. And, um, the thing that interests me the most uh, around that story is uh, around the same time, Atari was actually launched. Um, around 1972 is when Atari launched their brand in their first game. So you, you were right on the cusp of taking D&D &D and these old school games into this new world of digital. Um, and I mean, the, the foresight for uh, someone that young to want to build a business, never mind build a business in technology, um, is really intriguing. Um, so I want to jump a bit forward into electronic arts, and, and we don't want to stick on that for too long, but... Um, at EA and then through your career in the multiple other massive businesses that you've, you've headed, um, how have you promoted curiosity? I mean, is that something you look for when you hire your team? Is it something you promote openly as a culture? Um, 
maybe subconsciously you were doing it, but you know, when you look back, how was curiosity pitched in your organizations? Well, one thing I want to point out that I noticed really early <clears throat> was, uh, okay, when, when a new technology comes along, often in its early stage, it's very expensive because in order for it to become less expensive, things like the manufacturing volume of semiconductors or the density of the semiconductors has to get to a higher level of technology so that you can fit a lot more on a smaller chip that's because of its smaller size, less expensive to manufacture, and it generates less heat, and you can actually put it in a mobile device without the thing overheating. I mean, there's there's, there's all, all these sort of fundamental rules, you know, some of them related to uh, Moore's law. And then there's other factors that just have to do with volume where, hey, initially you're not going to have a lot of customers, so you're not going to be able to do have the efficiency of doing any activity in high volume. Okay, so uh, the earliest computers were, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry, uh, what I meant was the earliest access that the public had with computers it was uh, getting letters in the mail saying that you owed somebody some money and the computer, the big computer owned by that institution said so, and there's nothing you can do about it. For, for most of human history with computers in the 50s, 60s, 70s, it was annoying because big institutions had them and they were used against the public. Okay, so then finally in the 1970s, consumers started getting to, to touch computers. And ironically, one of those ways was the introduction of the ATM, where they discovered some interesting things like don't put it on the south face of the building. These little old ladies would come up and start touching the screen that had been cooking in the sun and burn their fingertips. It took a while. It took a while to figure out the human interface. <laughs> So, so you had the ATM as an early starting point, and then another one was the way uh, students in schools could go use a university computer uh, that was time-shared, and you could go to a computing center full of terminals and compete for time on that machine, which is why we all started staying up all night, because you wanted to wait until most of the students were sleeping so that you'd have more compute resource and everything would, would go faster. Anyway, uh, so that, that was a touch point. And I, I remember it was in 1975 that the very first retail store doing anything with computers opened. And lo and behold, I happened to be in the town where it happened, Santa Monica, California. It was a Paul Heiser's store called the Computer Store, which later became uh, one of the uh, bigger Apple dealers. And he had uh, terminals that you could rent for uh, $10 an hour. You could take it home and you could tap into your work mainframe or you could tap into a school, a timeshare uh, system that you had an account with. And that was one of the breakthrough moments where I realized, okay, it's really happening. These are gonna get into homes. Okay, so meanwhile, the other way they were showing up was in the arcades because if I make a Pong game, uh, I can spend $10,000 on it you know, the, it doesn't matter how expensive it is to make the thing because so many quarters are going to get put in it. It's going to make a profit. Uh, lots and lots of the public are going to show up and put money in it. We're not trying to get somebody to put it in their living room and expecting them to spend uh, $10,000 on it. And what, here's what I noticed, though, is the arcade games 
basically were only a form of amusement. They were designed to kill your character within two minutes and get you to put in more quarters. And they were arbitrarily designed to create confusion and to have it be awkward to win so that you would have to practice and put more money in it and in order to satisfy yourself that you figured it out. And it was really, it was really not very intellectual and it wasn't really simulating anything from the real world or even an interesting science fiction or fantasy world. And I just kind of dismissed it. And that's where I realized, yeah, I don't care about amusement. I don't care about helping people kill time. I want to help people use time and do and be learning while they're doing, I want them to be mentally engaged. And if they're mentally engaged, then I know they're going to be learning. And of course it turns out you're growing your brain cells and neurotransmitter connections, et cetera. But if that happens to be combined with a topic, like uh, back in the early days, there was a famous thing made by uh, the school system in Minnesota called the Oregon trail that simulated trying to cross the United States and get to Oregon. It was just a simple simulation game. There, there were some very basic text simulation games like Colossal Cave, et cetera. And they did require a lot of thinking. They didn't have impressive graphics, but that was okay. So again, I was always more more in the simulation side and the learning power. And that's why when the the critical ideas that I developed that uh, became the pillars of EA strategy, they were all kind of around this idea that, you know what, if this is a really new thing, if there's really never been anything like this in the home and with consumer access, and if it's got a lot of learning power and there's going to be a lot of diversity in terms of the kinds of software that people will have access to, what it is, is a new medium. And that is a really big deal, a really big deal. And I, I think I was the first person that really noticed that. And, and then I was also the first person that said, wait a minute, if it's a new medium, well, Hollywood is the industry that, you know, knows how to connect the public with media. So why don't we take this thing, this computer thing, that's always been a bunch of geeky engineers selling products to other geeky engineers and selling them to big companies. Why don't we think of this as if it was a Hollywood business? Uh, how would we run it? And of course, you know, the, the uh, core idea, uh, the big, what I always refer to as the big idea was the idea that the creator of the software is an artist and that this is a new medium. And okay, now how do you build a company around that idea? So clearly, uh, you've got to be curious enough to just step back and look at it and be able to recognize, wow, it's, this is a new medium. This is a really big deal. And can I make, can I make a new Hollywood? And do you think that um, there is something to be said for tying um, your curiosity to some kind of ambition? Um, I suppose someone um, like, uh, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to edit this out because it's just flown out of my head. Um, someone, uh, oh, anyways, we're going to have to move on because I cannot remember the person's name for the life of me that I'm trying to remember. But I am curious about how you feel about um, your ambition tied to your curiosity because the truth is you could have been curious about all these things, thought, oh, how do we make a Hollywood business and then just let the, the idea peter out. Well, <clears throat> one thing I, I uh, had going for me uh, in my childhood is, is that uh, 
my family was pretty weird about money. And so m- money ended up uh, as it, you know, it became part of my neurosis that there was shame around money. There, there was a punishment around money and there was constant criticism uh, about choices that may or may not produce money. I mean, you know, this is, this is a time period where I think there's a lot of parents telling a lot of kids to prepare to have a job in this post-war economy and do something predictable so that you can, you can stay afloat. And this is, I think, partly because my parents and their parents had been through a lot of crap, you know, in the first half of the 20th century. So, you know, we're all pretty tough. But they were really tough. I mean, their toughness had really been activated. <laughs> and so they're kind of lecturing me about caution and risk avoidance and, you know, you know, being a great student and then picking a really predictable career path. And you know what? I didn't I never wanted any of that. And it became kind of a uh, rallying cry for me personally to think, you know, I'm going to show my parents how to make some money. I'm going to blow their perceptions out of the water because I'm going to invent stuff that's got way more value. And this is one of the things that I think happens to a lot of entrepreneurs when they're young, is it, or, or even artists, any kind of artist, any kind of creative person, they know they're different. And everybody around them that's conventional is telling them not to do it. You know, don't be a starving artist. And this is one of the things that happens is a lot of people go, okay, I'll study accounting. Okay. You want me to be a doctor? I mean, there's all kinds of ways that people cave in to all the pressure around them. And a lot of us don't do that. And again, I can't completely understand what it was about me where it didn't matter which authority figure with a ton of experience and success was trying to tell me I was crazy and, and, and insist that I stop doing it immediately and they have me do this literally smirk and think, you have no idea <laughs> what's going to happen, do you? You know, I, I, it, was just, it was just kind of astonishing. I, I, just, I just shrugged it all off and just kept going exactly on the vector that I was on. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it definitely sounds like the restrictions and the boundaries that your parents and the quote-unquote adults around you put on you actually pushed you a little bit harder um, and it's, it's something that I'm interested in uh, discovering a bit more about the, the corporate world's understanding of, quote, like the idea of innovation is often you'll try and innovate with an endless budget and an endless timeline when, in fact, it's the box you put on the project that pushes that innovation and that curiosity a little bit further. And it sounds like your younger years were spent rebelling towards curiosity, not against it. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I had some great role models that were inspiring. I'm a really big believer in heroes. And I didn't, you know, again, I, uh, I felt it, uh, but I didn't like step back and have the self-awareness to say to myself, wow, heroes are really important to you. And there are reasons why they're important to you. I think one of the things that happens with heroes is that we resonate with traits that those people have that are actually part of us. And they're, they're the, the, the most amazing parts of us that we need to activate and develop to really become who we are. And 
you know, like one of the things I would do in my classes is I would put up a picture of Beyonce and then I would ask the, the students, what do you like about Beyonce? And they're thinking, why the heck? I'm taking a business class and this guy's got Beyonce on the screen. Why are we talking about Beyonce? But after a while, you know, you'd realize, and I would say, what do you like about her besides the fact that she can sing and dance? And they would start volunteering things about her personal traits and her values. You know, and, and then I would use that as a segue into how we gather up the, the, the people that we choose to have as our heroes and what, what it says about who we are at, at a deeper level. So I, I think it's super important uh, to have heroes. And, and then it just kind of uh, plays into uh, your ability to rally around what, uh, what really matters to you and these uh, inspiring role models. You know, again, for me in the 60s, it was really powerful when the Beatles came to America. And I felt like, wow, uh, these guys are really young guys. They came out of nowhere. They're doing something completely different. And everybody is real excited about it. And wow, look at this. And now there's a whole bunch of these bands and, and uh, there's a whole industry forming here. And I had the very good fortune to be born and raised in California and California for the last 150 years has been the center of innovation on planet earth. And so that, you know, I just had the benefit of being surrounded by it culturally and seeing example after example if I had been older, maybe I would have uh, noticed the formation of Hollywood and how remarkable that was. That had already been established, but it was a well-known, established part of California. And, you know, there are plenty of other examples. I didn't discover Silicon Valley, obviously, until much later, but I found myself there and I realized, wow, look at what's possible here. You know, so, uh, so you have the heroes. Yeah, so you have the heroes uh, that are inspiring you, and you have the concrete examples of where the culture is not forbidding something. You know, and I, I find myself thinking about uh, why is it that the Chinese had this amazing empire, you know, a thousand years ago, and they didn't bother to build a navy and go discover the Americas? And one part of that answer from historians that I've read is that, man, uh, they had so many resources right there in China, they didn't really need anything. And then the second thing was uh, it was a monarchy. And basically, if you were a really curious, innovative, entrepreneurial farmer peasant, you, you really needed to just keep your mouth shut. In fact, if you started talking about doing different things, you'd probably get punished. Whereas it was in Europe, you know, the uh, innovators, you know, like the inventors of the steam engine, the philosophers like John Locke, there, there were conversations going on, you know, 500 years ago in Italy or 300 years ago in England. You know, there, there were things happening that, that supported the curiosity and encouraged the exploration that resulted in the Europeans being the ones that, uh, you know, got to America and, and literally, <laughs> the uh, Asians, it's like, uh, you know, they fell so far behind technologically that the reason that uh, countries like Japan later decided, okay, we're going to have to open up a little bit because we've got to know what, what these people know, because right now we're at a political and, and military disadvantage because we don't know what they have in the way of weapons, just as one example.
There's a very direct correlation between what you've just said and how large corporates are run very similarly um, with a head who doesn't allow for too much curiosity that if the subordinates try and look up from their desks, they might get punched in the face and it prevents them from being curious from the bottom up and finding these blue ocean technologies. Um, so there's definitely a correlation between that and the corporate world. Yeah, and, and by contrast, uh, obviously in Silicon Valley, even even when I was finishing school at Stanford, Silicon Valley was was in the earliest stage, and pretty much it was a bunch of electrical engineers, like uh, people at Hewlett Packard, making complex instruments that they were selling to other electrical engineers. You know, nothing had happened yet that would be used by an ordinary member of the public. And, uh, you know, and, and in fact, my classmates all thought I was crazy because of my plan to go into Silicon Valley. They thought, oh, you're just going to get chewed up and spat out because you're not an electrical engineer. That was a widely, a widely held belief. And I was the only uh, entrepreneur, uh, I was the only person from my class that went into Silicon Valley to be an entrepreneur. Uh, there were a couple other guys that were electrical engineers that got jobs at Hewlett Packard, you know. But otherwise, nobody even went down there. They just thought I was crazy. You know, they, uh, you know, they could tell I had a kind of laser beam focus. And uh, one of the words that was used to describe me was bold. But none of them wanted any part of it. <laughs> so anyway, and if you look at what happened at Apple that I got to participate in and help happen, and then uh, what I was able to do at EA that kind of doubled down, you know, we were focusing on creating a new art form treating people as creative people and artists and the organization as a whole was really committed to constant innovation. We had a very open work culture, what, you know, what, what's you call flat organization. So anybody can talk to anybody. There were no private offices. Uh, nobody flew first class in airplane. We're all flying coach class. I mean, just, in other words, it's a one, it was a one class society for the purpose of innovation and risks were encouraged. Mistakes were celebrated. It's like, if you made a mistake, it's like, hey, way to go. You're pushing the envelope. Okay, now what did you learn? Because we want to teach the entire company the lessons because we don't, we don't like making the same mistakes. We want to make new and different mistakes. Out of interest, my first book was titled Do, Fail, Learn, Repeat. Um, I had 10 failed startups yeah. before I got my first successful one. Yeah, and, and you have to not mind <laughs> the failure. I want to ask you the last two quickfire questions. Um, the first is, uh, what are you curious about right now? Well, uh, this is a tough one here in America. My question is, can my fellow Americans wake up? Can we see Trump for what he is? Can we get him out of office? Can we restore an actual democracy? And I obsess about that question every day. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. And I'm sure from that obsession will come some interesting answers and solutions in the next year. Um, and I, I, imagine, so. I imagine that the final question is going to be quite tied to that. What is keeping you up at, at night? Exactly. The, sa the same, the self-same <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm really worried. I mean, I, there's, a, there's a lot of Americans that are really worried. Mm. You know, this, this is just uh, uncharted territory. Trip, thank you so much. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you and you gave me more time than I could have expected. Um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it.
My pleasure, Nick. God bless. Thank you for listening to the Curious Cult podcast, the show where we talk to incredible people about their fascinating curiosity. If you like this episode, please rate the show, like it, share it, and generally be kind to us and tell people about it. My goal is to spark curiosity that changes the world. And you can help by talking about the show to anyone who will listen. Stay curious. Until next time.